0: The vast majority of people make the vast majority of their mistakes in ruinous sympathy. Ruinous empathy is what happens when you do show you care, nice. but you're so worried about not upsetting someone or not offending them that you fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing. It's easier, it feels safer. It feels nice. Most people want to be nice. I mean, there are very few, there are some, but there are very few people who I've ever met. Who really set at wake up in the morning and think, I want to show everybody what a jerk I am today. Like, that's not usually what happens.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather, a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I have kind of a loud voice, so if it's loud, just tell me, will you? I've
0: been told that I have a loud voice
1: too okay good
0: I get a lot of feedback about my voice do you <laughs> people hate the sound of my voice you're kidding me oh what? no I get a, a look on Amazon it's like unbelievable what is wrong with her no way yes
1: oh my gosh yeah so on Amazon they grill you for it
0: oh yeah they're like with the audiobook this, oh yeah a large percentage of the one star you can hear it oh you, <laughs> you can serious? My, yeah yeah her voice, she's Southern, what's wrong? I'm like, yes, I am.
1: How does that make you feel?
0: At first I was like, I should really accept this feedback. And then a lot of the feedback was her voice is too high, which I think is not feedback, but rather bias speaking.
1: As the person who wrote the book, Radical Candor, Mm -hmm. do you feel like that gives people too much permission Give you feedback?
0: No, 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 no. I really genuinely love feedback. But one of the things that I have found is that it's important to distinguish between feedback that I agree with and that I think is, you know, you're allowed to reject feedback. In fact, you won't accept good, useful feedback yeah. if you're not free to reject feedback that is biased in some way, shape, or Yeah, form. but
1: aren't you insecure that you lack the self awareness to know? when feedback is productive versus not?
0: You know, I think- what
1: if you're missing something?
0: Yeah, I think that I'm more insecure to reject the feedback. I think I'm more likely to make the mistake of accepting feedback that I should not accept.
1: Accepting feedback that you should not accept. Give me an example.
0: So for example, I had a boss who told me that my jeans were not tight enough and he went out, he sent someone on the team out to buy me the tightest pair of jeans I ever owned in my life. And that is feedback that I should have rejected out of hand. But I called a friend of mine and I was like, well, maybe, you know, he's really trying to be helpful. And I should, it's true that, you know, I don't have a great fashion sense. (laughs) And she's like, this is ridiculous, Kim. First of all, you're at a tech company. It doesn't matter what you wear. And second of all, listen to what you're saying yeah. and what he said. Yeah. You know, So I think that I'm more likely to make the mistake of giving people too much the benefit of the doubt. Okay, that's a good doubt. example.
1: <laughs> Angela Duckworth made the intro to us. Mm-hmm. How do you know her?
0: I reached out to Angela. I love her book. Yeah. And I can't remember whether I reached out to her or she reached out to me, but I met her through her podcast. I was on her podcast. So many of the other writers I met, like Kelly Leonard, who wrote Yes And. I mm. met because he read Radical Candor and said, mm-hmm. come be on the podcast. So I met her the same way I'm meeting you right now.
1: Is it surreal? Like you've sold over a million copies over of a this million. book. Yeah. Which is like, Rare air, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny, you know, having worked at Google, a million is a small number. Right. (laughs) But for a book, yeah, that's a lot of copies.
1: Wall Street Journal, New York Times bestseller, multiple years running, translated in 23 languages. Mm -hmm. Has it been a surreal side effect of what doors that has opened for you? Meaning, specifically just the type of people that reach out to you yes. because they're just fans?
0: <laughs> yes, it has been really incredible, uh, the people that I've met. And all different, I mean, you know, one of the incredible things but your is, life has completely changed
1: as a result of this book.
0: Totally changed, yeah. When I published it, I was worried that, uh, you know, who cares about this middle manager at Google, what she says about management. And I thought that's what people would say. And, and it turned out it hit a nerve with people. So that was- That has been great. I will say, though, I mean, it's cool when somebody who's famous or someone whose book that I admire reaches out. But hands down, the best kind of feedback comes from people who, for example, I gave a talk recently, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, I became a manager for the first time, and it was really hard. And her eyes, like, filled up with tears. I could imagine what had happened. And she said, and someone gave me your book, and it was like, I had an older sister with me every step of the way. And that is the kind of thing that is fuel for, write. That's why one writes, you know, Mm -hmm. at least that's why I write. I write to give my younger self advice that I wish I had had when I started out.
1: Well, if you're writing to make money- it's pretty hard to make money as <laughs> an author, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no, it was really stupid to leave Dropbox <laughs> and all the equity I had at Dropbox in order to write Radical when Candor. When you were an
1: advisor, you mean? Or? No, oh,
0: no, no, no. Yeah, I was I was actually working. I had an operating role there. and you I did. I did, briefly. And I had this dream that I had got early onset Alzheimer's and it was too late for me to write the book I wanted to write. I woke up in the middle of the night in a panic And that was a big part of what, the reason why I left Dropbox. I mean, there was more to that story, which I'm not going to tell here, but that was part of the reason. And when I told them that I was leaving to write this book, they didn't believe me, actually. They thought, oh, you're just saying that. But it really was a big part of why I left. There was, again, more to the story, but that was a big part of it.
1: It's almost the uh, regret minimization framework.
0: Yes, yes, damn pink.
1: Where you imagine something in your life yeah, and- thus project that out 15 years from now and think how much would you regret it if that thing happened in your life?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And writing was something, I mean, my whole business career was really one plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. It was really important to me to- So you were always a writer? I was always, I wrote, while I was working at Google, I wrote a novel. I did a startup, I quit. I saved enough money to write a novel, quit for a year, I wrote a novel That one is called The Measurement Problem. And then I did another startup and I quit and I wrote another novel called The House Husband. And then while I was at Google, I wrote another novel called Virtual Love. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I have written, it's a compulsion. It's not something, I used to joke that writing was 100% about internal validation and my career was 100% about external validation. (laughs) And at some point, the two came together. Like, I really did love working at Google and working at Apple. I mean, they were great. And the startup, Juice, uh, there were parts to that that were internal validation. But until I wrote Radical Candor, the writing was all just really for myself.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Can you tell the story of the inspiration at Google to why you wrote Radical Candor?
0: <laughs> yes, This was something I'd been struggling with for a long time to figure out how to articulate the right way to manage people. I mean, early in my career, when I had started this company called Juice Software, which Kleiner Perkins declined to invest in wisely. Was that smart? (laughs) Yes, that was smart. That went under. (laughs) Uh, But at one point I came into work and I had gotten the same article emailed to me from a bunch of different people. And it was about how people would rather have a boss who's... A total asshole, but really competent than one who's really nice, but incompetent. And I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm incompetent or because they think I'm an asshole? And surely those are not my two choices, Mm -hmm. you know? So this was, I think, something that a lot of leaders kind of struggle Mm with. And when I started working at Google, at one point I had to give this presentation to the founders and the CEO, And I walked into the room and there was Sergey Brin on an elliptical trainer stepping away, wearing toe shoes in a bright blue spandex unitard, super tight. Not what I was uh wanting or expecting to see in the room. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt pounding away on his computer, doing his email or heaven knows what. And probably like you in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How was I supposed to get these people's attention? For me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. What did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more Mm. engineering resources? So... I'm feeling like the meeting's all right. In fact, I now believe that I'm a genius. And when the meeting's over, I walked past my boss, who was Cheryl Sandberg, uh, still is, but she was my boss at the time. And I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I messed something up in there. And I'm about to hear about it. And she began not by telling me what I had done wrong in the meeting, but what had gone well. But of course, all I wanted to hear about was what had gone wrong. And eventually she said to me, you said, I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I breathed a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? And Mm -hmm. I kind of made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal really. And then she said to me, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush-off gesture with my hand. And I said, no, I'm busy. I, didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. And then she stopped and she looked at me right in the eye. And she said, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now, she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say that I sounded stupid, but it was actually the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career, because if she hadn't used just those words with me, and by the way, this is crucial. I know there's a bunch of HR people out there saying, no, no, but she knew me well enough to know that if she didn't use just those words with me, that I would never have listened to her. But she also knew... (laughs) her audience well enough to know she better not speak that way to other people on her team who would be upset by her speaking that way. So once she said that, I went to visit the speech coach and I learned she was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had raised money for two other startups, millions of dollars for startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. It was almost like I suddenly realized that I'd been marching through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me about it. So this really got me to thinking, why had no one told me, but also what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And as I thought about her management style, I realized it really boiled down to two very basic things. She cared personally, and she challenged directly at the same time. I knew that she cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being, because she would do things like, when I moved from New York to California to take the job at Google, I didn't really know many people out here, and I was lonely, and she could tell that I was lonely, and she introduced me to a book group. I'm still friends with those people to this day. Also, shortly after I joined, my father was diagnosed with late-stage cancer, and I was devastated, of course, and, and she could tell I was devastated. She said, Kim, you go to the airport, fly home to Memphis, you need to be with your family right now. Your team and I will sit down and write your coverage plan. That's what great teams do for one another. We've got your back. And those were the kinds of things she did, not just for me, but for everyone who worked closely with her. She couldn't, of course, do those things for all 5,000 people Mm -hmm. in her organization. No matter how talented you are, relationships don't scale. Mm -hmm. You can only have a few of them. But culture does scale. And when a leader treats their direct reports with that kind of care it's much more likely that they in turn will treat their direct reports with that kind of care. And that creates a culture of caring, but it wasn't all sunshine and roses. I also knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that if I messed up, she would tell me that I messed up mm-hmm. in no uncertain terms. And she would keep telling me until it penetrated <laughs> my thick skull. And It's interesting. I think often when people talk about psychological safety, they think it means not saying the thing, but you actually feel safer if you know that the people around you will tell you when Mm. you mess up. So that was it. Care personally, challenge directly.
1: And you created a kind of two by two quadrant in your book. That yes. in the upper right-hand quadrant is the care personally, challenge directly. Yes. The challenge directly, I think, is on the X-axis and the caring is on the Y-axis. Or did I inverse that?
0: Caring is up and down, yes, vertical. Yes, exactly. Yep. Uh, yep. I never can remember which is X yeah. which is Y. <laughs> and challenging directly is on the horizontal Yeah, axis. and
1: Cheryl's feedback fit neatly into that upper right quadrant. Yes, exactly. One thing that got me thinking was um, how have I been coached throughout my career? Yeah. And as a result, how do I coach others? And I, at first, had a knot in my stomach because the way that I initially interpreted caring deeply was caring personally. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said about asking how their weekend was, getting to know their family, doing some of that. But the way that I was always shown personal caring, and I think the way that I try and show that to others is through work. Yes. And it's generally career oriented. Yes. Meaning the way that my I've only had one boss my entire career until Kleiner. And it was very little personal. Yeah. But it was always looking out for giving me more responsibility. Yeah. And nurturing my career and yeah. seeing something in me. Yeah. That other people didn't and making bets on me that yes. other people wouldn't. And that was a very sincere way of showing that he cared without necessarily asking about my folks over the holidays.
0: Yeah. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think that that is important. The way that you show that you care personally about someone at work is knowing them well enough to know how they want to grow at work and how fast they want to grow and also being aware when the person's work is not going well that there may be something going on outside of work that needs <laughs> needs some attention as well. And that is why I think Cheryl's recognition that I needed to leave work for a little... I was only going to mess up at work in that moment. I needed to go home in order to come back, be able to come back and do good work. Mm-hmm. So I think that you're right. It's interesting. I was talking to Andy Grove about this after he had retired about sort of what it meant to care personally at work. And there was a journalist who was doing an interesting article about mentorship. And the journalist had interviewed someone that Andy Grove had given some sort of transformative advice to. And this person considered Andy Grove a great mentor. And Andy said, you know, I was reluctant to talk to this journalist because Frankly, I barely remember that person. (laughs) We took a car ride. We took a cab ride together. We were on a business trip. And we took a cab ride from the airport into the, wherever they were going, the fab probably they were visiting. And he asked me a question. And I just was present for that moment for his question. And I thought about it and I answered him openly. And I think we forget these moments really matter where we connect sort of at a human level, but it doesn't have to take tons of time. That's my point. You don't have to remember even my children's names, but you do need to notice if I walk in and I look like I'm devastated to say, is everything okay?
1: 100%. When you were coaching folks like Jack Dorsey or Dick Costello, who else did you coach by the way? Like what other Twitter... Qualtrics? like, Did you you write the book? Ryan
0: Smith. So I started-
1: How did that happen?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was randomly. I could never have planned it. What happened was I left Google and went to Apple to create this course with a team of people called Managing at Apple. And the way that happened was a professor of mine from business school had decided to leave Harvard and join Apple as part of Apple University's effort to sort of rethink executive education and Steve Jobs had decided that he wanted to throw away all the management training that they had because he thought it was bunch. you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know what he thought of it but he wanted to throw it away and start from a blank piece of paper and Richard Tedlow my professor from Harvard Business School called me up and he said, you know, I've never really managed anyone, and you have. You want to come help us do this? And I was right at that moment where I had kind of realized that I didn't care at all about cost per click, although that was going very well at Google. What I really cared about was thinking through how you create an ethos on a team where people can do the best work of their life and enjoy working together, build the best relationships of their careers. And there wasn't a job that was focused on that at Google, but there was this job at Apple. So I went, I went off to Apple and helped develop this class and was teaching this class. Meanwhile, a friend of mine from Google became CEO of Twitter, Dick Costolo. And he called me up and he said, why don't you come in on the weekend and help me design this class managing at Twitter? <laughs> And lo and behold, managing at Twitter was exactly like managing at Apple. And frankly, it's the same. The basic aspects of managing people are the same. It's not like it's radically different in tech versus Mm -hmm. in finance or any other sector. And that was sort of how I began thinking, well, maybe I should write a book about this. And Dick mentioned that I was coaching him to an article in Bloomberg or something about CEO coaches. I never would have gone to Dick and said, why don't I become your CEO coach? He kind of announced that I was. And then a lot of people started like reaching out to these me. These
1: amazing tech luminary CEOs yes. just started reaching out. You're yes. like, what the hell is going on yes. right now?
0: Yeah, it was really, that was when I started writing full-time Radical Candor. So as I was coaching people- It
1: was informing the book.
0: Yeah, it was informing the book. And also, yeah, we would try ideas out. And in fact- For a long time, I was calling radical candor, I was calling it cruel empathy. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. Jack Dorsey refused to read it until I changed the title. So, no. He said, it sounds like a harlequin romance. I refuse to read a management book called Cruel Empathy. So there you go.
1: That is so funny. Yeah.
0: My husband also hated the title Cruel Empathy.
1: I don't like it either. Yeah. Yeah. I know.
0: I I was wrong. It was, see, that was example of good feedback.
1: (laughs) And it was mostly tech CEOs and founders, right?
0: Yes. At the beginning.
1: Because that's where my day to day is basically spent full time. And most of these tech CEOs, especially the ones that you listed here, are very introverted, technology-oriented people. Yeah. They don't get the juice like you and I might from people stuff. Yeah. They enjoy the technology more than the people and the management and the organization. Was there an obvious blind spot that they all consistently had around wanting, let alone being able, to give feedback to people?
0: The vast majority of people make the vast majority of their mistakes in ruinous empathy. Even people who others consider kind of harsh. Like I was doing um, a radical candor, a few radical candor sessions at an investment bank, which does not have a reputation for being ruinously empathetic. And, but that was their perception of- Ruinous
1: having- empathy being, I give you direct feedback, but I don't show you that I care.
0: No, 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 no. That's obnoxious aggression. Mm-hmm. So, ruinous. Let's go through what mm-hmm. radical candor is not. Ruinous empathy is what happens when you do show you care, yes. but you are so worried about not upsetting someone or not offending them that you fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing. That's the mistake that the vast majority of us make. The vast majority of because it's time. easier. It's easier. It feels safer. It feels nice. Most people want to be nice. I mean, there are very few, there are some, but there are very few people who I've ever met who really set at, wake up in the morning and think, I want to show everybody what a jerk I am today. Like that's not usually what happens. Now, what could land us in what I call obnoxious aggression, which is what happens when you do remember to challenge, but you fail to show you You care. And in the first draft of the book, by the way, I called that the asshole quadrant because it seemed Mm -hmm. more radically candid. But I stopped doing that for a very important reason. I found that when I did that, people would start, use the two-by-two framework to start writing names in boxes. Mm. And I beg of you, please don't use this framework that way because... It's not another Myers-Briggs personality test. Like that's not how this, don't use this framework to judge other people or to judge yourself. These are mistakes that all of us make all the time. So think of this radical candor two-by-two framework like a compass to guide specific conversations with specific people to a better place. Now, obnoxious aggression. I think it's worth spending a minute or Mm -hmm. two on obnoxious aggression because- It's a problem, but I think we don't really understand why it's a problem. I mean, part of why it's a problem is that it hurts other people and that we do know. But I think it's also a problem because it's inefficient. If I start screaming at you, you're likely to go into fight or flight mode and then you literally cannot hear what I'm saying. So I'm wasting my breath. Why bother (laughs) acting like a jerk? If the goal is to give someone feedback, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. And then there's a third problem with obnoxious. I mean, there's a million problems, but I'll talk about three. And the third big problem with obnoxious aggression is, at least for me, and I'd be curious to know what happens with you, but when I realize that I've landed there, when I realize that I've acted like a jerk or upset someone, it's not my instinct to go the right way on care personally, which is what I ought to do. Instead, it's my instinct to back off on challenge directly, to go the wrong way on challenge directly. And then I wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. So if obnoxious aggression is front stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing. That's where passive aggressive behavior, political behavior happens in manipulative insincerity. And... These are the mistakes that we talk about most often. If you watch Silicon Valley on HBO or you watch The Office, there's going to be a bunch of episodes about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. But these are not the mistakes that most people make most of the time. So even these sort of hyper confident CEOs who I've coached make most of their mistakes in ruinous empathy.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. I think my experience is mostly the obnoxious aggression. Personally, I have this, tick's a bad word, but almost like a, I feel this moral obligation where when I hear something that just doesn't sit right with me or that I think is wrong or that I think just needs to be pointed in a different direction. I have to say it. Yeah. And by the way, that does not include just professionally. (laughs) That is also in my personal life. (laughs) And, you know, I try and have the setup be that I care, Mm -hmm. but in those moments, it doesn't feel like I care, you know?
0: You know, it's funny. I was thinking, I don't know why I was thinking about this, I guess, because it's February. The other day, I was thinking about this guy that I dated a long time ago, and he was very focused on always telling the truth, and he had a tendency to focus on negative truths, not positive truths, which I think is not uncommon. He was a wonderful person, But I had moved to Moscow, to Russia, and he was in New York, I think. This was 1990, and it was Valentine's Day. So it must have been 1991, Valentine's Day. And I had to call him. I wanted to call him on Valentine's Day. And in order to do that, to make an international call, I had to stand in line for like four hours and I spent half my, half my monthly salary on making this phone call to this guy I was dating. And when I got through to him, the first thing he said is, you know, I haven't really been missing you that much. <laughs> and maybe that was truth, but that was not the truth I needed to hear at that moment. Totally. You know? uh, yeah, so I get it. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever heard about any relationship, whether it's a work relationship or a personal relationship is to leave three unimportant things unsaid every day. Radical candor is not about nitpicking. You know, there are things that don't matter or that you shouldn't say. Like there was a guy who worked for me once and he tended to wear black shiny shirts. And I don't like black shiny shirts, but you know what? (laughs) It was none of my business what color his shirts were. And I said to him one day, oh, you know, I sure do like a man in a white, clean white shirt. And then the poor guy went out and bought a bunch of white Oxford shirts. And I thought, you know, that was an asshole move on Mm. my part. You know, I didn't need to say that.
1: I think that there are good frameworks, both personally and professionally, to share or accumulate some of the things that might matter less and put them in a review or a one-on-one or whatever it might be?
0: I don't think, no. I think if you're not going to say it, you got to let it go. Really? Don't don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it. Absolutely do not hold on to it for a review or a one-on-one. The three unimportant things, you got to truly let them go. And if you can't let them go, then it's important to mention it. I remember one time... I gave a radical candor talk, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, if I'd heard this talk five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced. And he said when he first got married, he noticed, and it bugged him, that his wife clinked her spoon on her teeth when they were eating cereal in the morning. But he didn't want to be pesky, he, so he didn't say anything, but it was bothering him more And more and more. I said, finally, she clinked her spoon on her teeth one last time. I was like, I got to get a divorce. Presumably, there were other things. (laughs) There were other things going on. But sometimes there's something that someone does that bothers you, and you know it's irrational. But you also know it's really hard for you to not say something. And I think it's worth saying something to the person, especially if it's someone who you really care about. Yeah. I don't think I'd be married right now if it weren't for radical candor. When I was first dating my then boyfriend, but now husband, I used to do yoga in the morning. And I was doing my yoga and he like came in and sat down on the couch in the room where I was doing yoga and started reading the paper. I still got the physical paper then. And I was like, oh my God, I got to quit dating. You know, I never, I never want to see him again. And then I'm like, I could just ask him to leave the room and then we could, <laughs> and I did. And he was like, oh, okay. And he left the room and it was no big deal. It was like one of those things where I was starting to fight with myself. Like it's irrational. Why should I care? And then I'm like, you know what? It's just easier for me to tell him to leave the room.
1: When we briefly talked before this, I I think in the same breath said Kim Scott and academic. And yes. you vehemently denied that <laughs> title. And in my mind, I'm like, look, she's written several books. Yeah. She's a teacher. You know, yes. I kind of like yeah, I bucket yeah, it all in the same. Yeah. But in your mind, you took that, you did not like that. It was very clear to me. And I think, all right, she's done several startups. She was at Google, she was at Apple. She's been a CEO coach in the action. Yeah. Did part of that. I don't know if offend you is the right word, but did part of that, was that a slight in your mind because then therefore you're not in the mix kind of thing?
0: No, that's interesting. I wasn't offended. I I think I was just correcting you. Uh, uh, (laughs) There's a big part of me that wishes I had been an academic. And I think there's more than a little part of me that feels, especially being in Silicon Valley, that feels bad that I didn't do research to write my books. I just wrote both Radical Candor and Radical Respect based on trying to make sense of my personal experiences. Mm. So one of the reasons why I really love working with Amy Edmondson is she has done the research that sort of backs up my instincts. Mm. And so I think that's part of it, is that there's part of me that feels like Maybe I quote unquote should have done the research. I decided not to do the research very consciously. A friend of mine sent me a James March book called Ambiguities of Experience. And James March wrote about the different ways that we achieve knowledge. And research is certainly one of them, but it's not the only one. And I think it can be pretty hard just to make sense of your own personal experiences And I think if I had done the research, it would have gotten in the way, actually, of my ability to make sense of my experiences. That makes sense. Yeah. I have a lot of admiration for academics. I have maybe some of the vehemences. I have a lot of questions. It was so beneficial to me to go to college where I went to college and to go to business school where I went to business school. And there's part of me that feels like I got an unfair advantage, that privilege was compounding. And I think the privilege is compounding faster, so fast that it might be about to disintegrate at these universities, <laughs> as I, we've seen recently.
1: Can I give you another observation in that vein? Yeah. I've listened to and watched and read most of the things that you've done. And when you tell stories, mm-hmm. let's say when you tell a story about Cheryl Sandberg, I've noticed that you do not say who she is. You say your boss. And- even now, you went to HBS. You make a point to say that you did not go to Harvard. Yeah. Um, well, I
0: don't say that I didn't go. I don't say that I did go. You don't, exactly. Yes.
1: Exactly. Yes. But you make a point to not say it. Yes. Is that a guilt
0: thing? That's responding to feedback. If you look on Amazon at the critical reviews- Oh, like your name
1: droppy. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of people- who find that obnoxious. And I decided consciously as, as I didn't decide before I walked, but as we sat down and you asked me to tell you the story, I decided, you know, he's not going to mind if I say who was in the room yeah. in that story. So maybe some of it is guilt, but I think it's more so I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and my father's big concern when I went off to Princeton, and I'll say it, that's where I went to college, was that I was gonna come back a snob. And when I came back for, I think Thanksgiving was the first time I came back after I left freshman year, the first thing he said to me when I walked in the door was not, hello, I love you, I missed you. He looked at me right in the eye. And he said, are you a snob yet? <laughs> and I'll never forget that. And I think that was, he was you carry that. Yeah. I carry that. Yeah. And, and I think he, so maybe it's his voice yeah, that makes sense. in the back of my head to him. That was like one of the worst things you could be. And he was right. There was a lot of wisdom in that.
1: When people preface questions with, can I be honest with you? Does that bother you?
0: Yes. Because the real question you should be asking is, do you mind if I lie to your face? Like you better be honest with me. Right, uh, but it's
1: usually the preface before they give you some tough feedback yeah, or they ask you a tough question.
0: Yeah, I'm happy for people to be as honest. I, I don't mind obnoxious aggression. In fact, there are some people, I've gotten some feedback that maybe I have a weakness for obnoxious aggression. Oh, I it's enjoy, a soft I, spot. I like it, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you founded th- three companies?
0: Yeah, so- Three startups? Several startups. So I was- early on at a company called juice software so i was not a founder of that one okay uh, sorry i was a founder of juice before that was capital thinking okay this is now we're stretching back Uh into the deep past and then i started another company called candor inc Mm -hmm. to build kind of
1: operationalizing the framework that you put in the book right
0: well, th- it was software. We were, right. th- the idea was that there was going to be this candor coach that was going to be like mm-hmm. that voice on your shoulder that was telling you when you screwed up. And, and I sort of realized that the purpose of writing Radical Candor and what I was really trying to teach people to do was to have real human conversations and that this software totally. we were building was kind of getting in the way of that.
1: Are you not a startup person?
0: Oh, I'm very much a startup person. In fact, if you read Radical Candor and Radical Respect, a lot of the lessons from those books actually come from Juice Software, which is the startup that I co-founded and was CEO of. A lot of them also come from Candor Inc. Like the startups, the failed startups that <laughs> I have never succeeded right. as a startup person, but the failed startups have enriched me in other ways. Um yeah. it's where I've learned a lot of my most important lessons.
1: What's interesting is you seemingly didn't have a management issue in these companies like you must have been Plenty direct and honest and had a good communication style that ostensibly was effective within the organization. Were you not a good CEO in other ways? Was it what, Oh no, I had, I, had
0: big, I had a big management problem, a at management actually. I mean, that was long before I, I wrote Radical Candor. Right. And I think that people from that company would tell you that I pulled a lot of punches, that I was a very direct. of in fact, I had a co-founder at that fact, a Charles Ferguson, who wrote a book called High Stakes, No Prisoners, and he was very direct. He made a lot of his mistakes. He was not one of those people who made most of their mistakes in ruinous empathy, I would say. He directed a wonderful movie, several wonderful movies, but No End in Sight is one of them, and you can watch him interviewing people. I mean, he really Mm. is pretty he's all about challenge directly. And I think one of the big mistakes I made at juice was that I allowed him to be the bad cop and I was the good cop. And that is a terrible dynamic between two co-founders. And it was bad for us, but it was much worse for the team and for the company. I mean, I think it's part of the reason why why we failed.
1: Do you regret starting these companies?
0: No, not at all. And I don't even think the investors regret it too much. Uh, Eric Schmidt was one of our investors. And I remember when I was interviewing at Google, sort of feeling a little sheepish about that. And he was so charming about it. He was like, I invest in startups because I expect nine out of 10. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many you all expect to fail, but I expect a lot of them to fail. And I admire the effort and good things come out of it. I mean, in fact, many of that founding team at Juice wound up working at Google. So he maybe made good on his investment one way or another.
1: How do you think about reviews? Do you like reviews or do you not like reviews?
0: I think performance reviews are necessary. They're Mm. absolutely necessary. I don't think anybody likes performance reviews, Mm. but they are necessary I think there's a lot of confusion between sort of developmental feedback and performance reviews. And, and I think it's really important to clear that up. So mostly what I talk about in radical candor are these two minute impromptu development conversations where you're telling me something that I'm doing wrong in order to help me get better. You're not telling me because it's going to impact my bonus or you're, you're it's sort of Hooking into intrinsic motivation to improve and to improve the work and also to improve the relationship that we have working together. Performance management or performance reviews are in my mind necessary because if you don't have them, then part of what's going to happen is that the decisions that you're making as a manager about who gets promoted and how much bonus you're going to pay people get even more opaque than they already are. So part of the reason for the performance management is to make the thinking behind those decisions more transparent to people. I think they're also necessary because sometimes, in fact, not just sometimes, I think the most common problem with communication is the illusion that it's happened. And so you'll tell me over and over and over and over again, that I'm doing something wrong. And I'll seem like I hear you, but I'll keep doing that thing. And until I read in my performance review that it's going to have an impact on my pay and all my career, I may not fix that thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are reasons why performance reviews are really important. There's another important thing about a well-designed performance review, which is that, it can prevent managers from having too much power. When managers have unilateral decision-making power over who gets promoted, who gets fired, who gets paid, then bad things happen. Mm. That was one of Shona Brown's main insights at Google. Shona Brown was the... SVP for business operations at Google. And she designed a lot of the systems that I think really helped Google succeed in the early days. And not even in the not so early days, they persisted a lot of those systems. And the important thing about a well-designed performance review system is that it's 360, Mm -hmm. is that I can't decide that I don't like you know, so-and-so's shiny black shirts. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pay him a bonus. If everybody is sending in incredible feedback about what it's like to work with him and the results of his work, then I'm less able as a manager to make an unfair decision based on some ridiculous criteria. Bad managers are rarely bad people, but a little bit of power really corrupts us and so it's really important to have some checks and balances.
1: What is it? Absolute power? Corrupts absolutely. Absolutely, A
0: little bit of power corrupts a lot. Yeah. (laughs) You know?
1: One of the other aha moments that I had with your book was that I'm a feedback junkie. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I love feedback. I thought I wanted it, but I started asking myself, do I actually want it? Because I would ask for feedback. I would solicit feedback in a way that wasn't effective and I continue to ask for it in the same way, which is what feedback do you have for
0: yeah. me? Yeah. Yeah. I can already tell you the answer. Oh no, everything's fine. Yeah. yeah, right?
1: yeah. No, you're great. Everything's yeah. great. Yeah. And it's always things around the edges. And I realized that there are much better and effective ways to actually get and elicit the response that you want from someone, which is feedback. One, I don't know if I read this or I don't even know where this came from but like, hey, what could I do to make it easier to work for? What could I do as your boss to make your life better? There's so many ways. Yeah. To reposition the question to actually get the feedback that in the back of my mind I'm like, am I stupid or scared? You know like like, like You're it's, neither. It's you're so you're obvious. Though. It's you're so hu- obvious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's uncommon sense, I think. Once you stop and think about it and talk to someone who spent an absurd amount of time thinking about it, it's obvious. But it's we evolved to work well in groups. And if we were thrown out of the group, then we were dead. If you think about risk and reward, if you're investing money in a risky investment, you know you want a high return. But I think if you're giving someone feedback or you're getting feedback, that is risky. That feels very risky. And if you're not confident that you'll be rewarded, you're not gonna ask for it in the future and you're not gonna give it in the future. The emotional risks we take, we demand an even higher (laughs) return on than the financial risks that we take. So when you solicit feedback, the fact that you don't really want to hear the answer, it just means you're human, you're normal. And that's okay, like being human is all part of this. So what I do with people, by the way, if you read the book, there's a question that Fred Kaufman, who was my coach at Google, suggested that we ask, which is, is there something I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But then I got some feedback from some readers. It would be much better to say, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? So rule number one about your feedback question is that don't ask it in a way that can be answered with a yes or a no. Don't ask it in a way that the other person can say everything's fine. So what could I? The second thing about the question is that if you don't write down the question I just gave you, although I did write down Fred's and I used it and it worked for me. But for a lot of people, it won't work. If you sound like Fred Kaufman or Kim Scott, then people might not believe you mm-hmm. want the answer. So I was working with Krista Quarles when she was CEO of Open Table, And she said, Kim, I could never imagine those words coming out of your mouth. She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm wrong. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's fine too. Mm-hmm. It needs to sound authentic. And you need to kind of put the other person on the spot but you also need to adjust the question depending on who you're speaking with. Mm-hmm. So for example, I started this company with Jason Roseoff, Radical Candor. We do talks and workshops and after we had worked together for about a month, Jason said to me, "You know, Kim, I really I hate your go-to question." it's too open-ended, it makes me nervous and could you ask me more specifically? So it needs to be authentic to you but it also needs to work for the other person. Mm -hmm. Being authentic doesn't mean ignoring the impact you're Mm -hmm. having on the other person. So spend some time, like if everybody listening to this podcast can just spend a couple of minutes thinking about what question they will ask and then think about who you're gonna ask it and adjust it a little bit, and for bonus points, put it in your calendar and actually do it, then our time today will be very well spent because that question, the way you ask is really important, but it's only the first step to soliciting feedback. Mm. No matter how good your question is, the other person is still gonna feel uncomfortable. The only thing you can do, the only way you can get through to get out of that is to go through it. You have to embrace the discomfort again, words of wisdom from Andy Grove, who said, "You, this is an uncomfortable moment when you're soliciting feedback. Close your mouth, count to six. It's really hard. You made it all the way to six, though. You saw me nodding, so you could tell how long. It's really hard. Six seconds is an eternity. Really it is hard. really, really hard to stay. But If you can manage to stay silent, not to jump in and say, oh, it's okay, you can tell me later, but stay silent, the other person will probably tell you something. So now, congratulations, you've dragged this poor soul out on an emotional limb, conversational limb they never wanted to go on. So now you're kind of uncomfortable because of what they said, what they're about to say, and they're uncomfortable. So now you're both equally uncomfortable they'll probably tell you something. The third step is to make sure that you listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. And this is really hard because what they're going to say is probably going to make you feel a little bit defensive. And again, that's okay. Like you're allowed to feel defensive, but you want to make sure that you're doing a simple thing to do is ask a follow-up question. So for example... My daughter said to me the other day at breakfast, mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And immediately this guilt, this wave of guilt, parental guilt washed over me. I thought, ah, she wishes I were spending more time with her. And then I thought, well, I should ask my follow-up question. So I said, well, who do you wish I were? And she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. (laughs) So I could go spend a little more time at work as far as she was concerned. So you want to make sure you really are being very curious to try to understand what the other person meant. And then it comes time to reward the candor.
1: In my world, we're in the outlier business. Mm -hmm. And outliers are very unique in what they are. And what they're doing. They're different from everything else. Yes. The people driving them are different. They're often misunderstood. Yes. Until they are understood. And that can be years. Yes. Years. Yes. By the way, in your case, maybe it never happens, right? Uh, Yeah. uh, You got to make it to the point where the rest of the world thinks you're normal, not you or, you know, crazy or whatever.
0: Yeah. And maybe you are. Maybe Maybe you are. uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Both two things can be true.
1: That's true. One downside that I've seen with a lot of founders is that they will go solicit feedback from a bunch of people about their very unique company and circumstance. And everyone's going to have an opinion. And sometimes I can see them going left and then going right. It's very herky-jerky. Yeah, And it's because they're overly receptive to feedback. And I think it's actually partly an insecurity, because they're doing things for the first time that no one's ever done. Yeah. And so they just want as much data as possible, but it actually has an, a bad effect on quality of decision-making because most of those people, by the way, VCs included, they lack the appropriate context yeah. to help actually inform the right decisions. And so in those cases, I'm like, okay, people are being candid, yeah, but- I'm pretty sure you shouldn't listen to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of touched on this earlier. A really important part of being open to feedback is being able to reject feedback. I'll never forget at one point, I'm not going to tell you the feedback because that would be sharing something I shouldn't, but when I was working with Jack Dorsey, one of my responsibilities was to share with him feedback that maybe ordinary people at the company didn't feel safe sharing. And I remember bringing something to him and he looked at me and he said, I reject that feedback. <laughs> and it was, it was really an important moment. I realized, and I thought, you know, you should reject that feedback. That feedback is wrong. And so I think being able to reject feedback, but to reject it in a way, one of the things that I really admire about Steve Jobs is his willingness to show his work, to explain to people why he was wrong or to show his work so that they could explain to him when he was wrong. It is a really good idea when you get some feedback that you instinctively disagree with. The first thing to do is to look for the, there's something that person just said that you can agree with. And give voice to that thing that you can agree with, even if it's only 5% of what they said. And by doing that, you're sort of making sure that you're not instinctively shut down to feedback. And you're also making your listening tangible. You're showing this person that by talking to you, they're not wasting their breath. Because you want them to keep talking to you. And then... You want to say, as so that's what I agree with. As for the rest of it, I want to think about it, and then I want to get back to you. Or you can have the conversation right away if you're not feeling overly agitated. And then you want to explain to the person why you disagree with them. I think it's so tempting to feel like after we solicit feedback, we're not allowed to disagree with it. And that's just not true. Mm. If you explain to the person why you disagree with the feedback, then you're sort of showing your work and the person can say, actually this part of your logic that you just shared with me, I think is wrong. And maybe then you're both wrong, but you're now you're going together in a better direction.
1: You touched on this earlier when we were talking about uh, your husband in the room while yeah. you were doing yoga. Yeah. But at home, do you do anything to create space for feedback like this? It's funny because at work, we have all sorts of processes in place yes. to do this, but at home, we really don't. Do you do anything?
0: Yeah. I mean, my husband and I take a walk together almost every day, and that is an opportunity for us to talk about all kinds of things. I think one of the things that I have found is really important for my ability, not only to build good relationships you know, in my personal life, but also to do good work, is to have an hour every day where I'm really talking to someone who I love, having like a real conversation. And sometimes in that conversation, he's telling me something that I've done that, that has annoyed him or that is problematic, or I'm telling him. So that's kind of like our time together. We also, for a long time, we had date night once a week when we didn't have time to take a walk together because we were both We had young kids in operating roles. We would, every Wednesday night, go out to dinner together. And that was, I think, really important time. So making sure that you're setting aside time. The other thing that I did early on after we got married was I kept a gratitude journal. I like wrote down the three or four things that he had done. And then I'm like, why am I writing this down? I'm married to this man. I should tell him. Mm. And so I started telling him the things instead of writing them down. But I think that's really, it's useful.
1: Yeah. I can't believe I'm sharing this, but one thing that my girlfriend and I do, all credit to her, and I was skeptical, as most men would probably be, uh, (laughs) was a QBR, Uh but a QLR. Uh And the way she framed it, which made a lot of sense to me, I actually suggested the QBR and she massaged it to make more sense for a relationship, was three glows and three grows. It doesn't have to be three, but three things, quarterly that we've observed that are great. Yeah. And we want more of. Yeah. And three things, whatever, two, four, that we've noticed that you could change. Yeah. Yeah. It's been incredible. Yeah. And we also do the weekly date night date night. That seems to be a pretty good system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The weekly date night is really especially it was important for us after we had kids because once we had kids we had twins. There were several years in there where we just couldn't get a word in edgewise. It was totally. also really important after having kids to go away once a quarter to the post ranch in, you know, like to get out of town together.
1: Is that where you would go specifically? That's where we would go. I mean, that's a hell of a that, getaway. That,
0: yeah, you better have a romantic. It's like sometimes there's something about spending that much money that, you know, you better it really enjoy brings each up other. The romance.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's a quote I read somewhere. It said, at one point when I was having a very stressful period in my career... I realized that the most important thing I could do for my team was not hire great people. It was not to raise a lot of money. It was actually to take a run every morning. Yes. Can you explain that?
0: So one of the things that I did at one point in my career, I was unhappy in several jobs that I had right after business school. And I decided I just needed to quit. So in 1999, I decided I was going to make this the year of my fantasy and I was going to just do whatever I wanted. And my goal was to learn what I needed to do to stay centered and ideally to stay happy. But at the very least, to stay centered. And I realized it, it was pretty simple. I needed to take a run. Now I take a walk, now that I'm older. <laughs> but at that point, I had You to- could still run. I could still run, but it's not good for my knees. It's not good for my back. It's and I live in the hills. Like my heart rate gets up to one forty. Okay, 150, all right, all right. You're so. very
1: you're predetermined on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I'm walking. Yeah. Uh, right, uh, now yeah,
0: right. <laughs> I have a back injury, but anyway, at that point I was running, so I needed to take a run every day, and a good run, and it needed to be outdoors. Mm-hmm. I needed the sunlight, or if it was raining, I would run in the rain. And I needed to get enough sleep. I needed to stop feeling guilty about the fact that I needed not eight but usually nine hours of sleep. And I just needed to get enough sleep. My I thought much better. I was I reacted much. But everything was better if I got enough sleep. And I needed to spend an hour with someone I love, talking to someone I really cared about. And ideally, I'd read a novel every week too. Like that was kind of mental house clearing. And if I could do those things then no matter what was going on, I would stay centered. And if I didn't do those things, even if things were pretty easy, mm. then I would freak out. And so that was part of why I realized that even though the startup was so stressful and I was so busy, it was really important to prioritize me doing those things, in particular the run, but also the sleep and spending time with people who are really in my personal life who I really cared about. And that made a world of difference, actually. It was really important.
1: It surprises me that still we underestimate the value of eating well, sleeping well, and working out. (laughs) Yes.
0: It's so basic, and yet I still, even though I know this to be wrong, I still sometimes feel guilty when I'm going to bed early, when there's still a lot of work that has to be done. And well, I'm like, it's yeah, ridiculous. When I'm
1: busy, I mean, my team knows this, but I take meetings running. So I'll take like one-on-ones with my team yeah, on runs.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And <laughs> yeah, it's probably the most obnoxious thing that they could probably hear on the other line. <laughs> but that's my way of you compromising. Do yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I had a mentor once who said when, and this was a guy who had gone through seriously stressful Times in his career. And he said, when things are really bad, I work out twice. I work out in the morning and I work out in the evening because otherwise I'm not going to sleep well. That was like a revelation to me. Like, oh, you can do that. You know? Totally.
1: Yeah. When things get really bad for me, I'll do yoga, morning workout, and then yoga at night. Yeah. And I get 10 minutes into yoga and I'm like, I'm not going to make it. Because my mind is going so crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, well, maybe that's why I should be here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why you should be there. Yeah.
1: You wrote a new book. You mentioned it earlier, Radical Respect. Thank you for the copy. It comes out in May.
0: May 7th. But you can pre-order it now. Please do.
1: Do you worry, like, the bar is pretty high. And you put the name, you put the word radical in here. Yes. So you're like really... At risk of being in the shadow of your previous successes here.
0: That's a good shadow to be in. I don't I don't you mind. Don't mind. That. I, look, I, when you- You're not worried. When you write, look, I've written several novels that never got published. Despite the success of Radical Canner, nobody will still publish my novels. Although you can buy them on Amazon. I self-published
1: them. What do you mean? Them.
0: So I wrote these novels. I wrote The Measurement Problem.
1: No one will publish them?
0: No. No one will publish them. <laughs> They're like, people will say, oh, fiction is hard, you know. So anyway, I self-published them and they have a small number of readers who seem to enjoy them, but a small number.
1: And it's meant to be a prequel.
0: Yes, so radical respect is, you're not gonna care about people who you don't respect and you're not gonna challenge people who you don't respect. And so radical respect is what you need to have in order to create radical candor. And I realized this, shortly after Radical Candor came out, I was at a tech company in San Francisco giving a Radical Candor talk. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, someone I like and respect enormously, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech Mm -hmm. or in any other sector. And when I finished giving the talk, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's gonna help me build the kind of culture I want, but I gotta tell you, It's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And I asked her why. And she said, as soon as I offer anyone even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, I get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And as soon as she said that to me, I knew it was true. And I had four realizations at the same time. Mm. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be. I had failed to be an upstander because I had failed even to notice the extent to which she had to show up at every meeting we had ever been in together over the course of almost a decade. She had always had to show up unfailingly cheerful and pleasant, and I hadn't even noticed or considered the toll that must take on her. So I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I want to be. The second thing that I realized was that I had been in denial about the kinds of things that happened to me as a woman in the workplace, a woman in tech, kind of hard for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit. But I think I had been in denial because I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. So I'd pretended that a whole host of things were not happening that were in fact happening. And the third thing that I realized was that even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim, did I want to think of myself as the culprit. And so I had been most deeply in denial about the times when I was the one who was biased, when I was the one who was prejudiced, when I was the one who was bullying people. I imagined, and this brings me to the fourth thing that I realized as a leader I kind of imagine that, well, if I'm in charge, all this other BS won't be happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I'm in charge. But just because you're the founder and CEO of a company does not mean that human nature (laughs) and its tendencies have suspended themselves. All these kinds of things are going to happen. And if you don't very consciously design your company and your culture and your management systems to avoid problems, then you're going to get them.
1: Super interesting. Was it harder or easier to write this book?
0: Way harder to write this book. Uh, Do you
1: wish you wrote part of this book in Radical Candor?
0: In theory, it would have been good if more of this had been in Radical Candor, but I just don't think I could have. So, yes, I wish life were different and I were different, but I don't think I could have written this book then. I think it took getting a little bit older and it took... Getting a little bit more confident, a lot more confident. It took the success probably of Radical Candor to be able to write a book. To be able to write this book. Because I tell a lot of stories about stuff that's kind of humiliating in my career and very personal stories. But I think these are things that happen to everybody. And so it's useful to tell the stories. What was
1: the story that was hardest for you to share in the book personally?
0: So there was a time in my career when I gave this guy a pass over and over and over again. And then he wound up really harassing a woman on the team in a way that was scary for her. And it was really hard for me to admit that that happened at a company that I had founded and was the CEO of. I didn't like to think that that kind of thing had happened on my watch, but I also felt like, You know, it was maybe uniquely safe for me to admit that mistake. I think it would be harder for a man to admit that that happened on their watch. But it was also uniquely painful. I was like, gosh, part of the reason why I started that company was because I had been underpaid, I had been harassed in my career, and I thought I was creating a company where that kind of stuff wouldn't happen. And it did anyway.
1: Yeah, super powerful. Yeah. Pre-order it now.
0: Yes, absolutely. Pre-order the book right now.
1: Pre-order it now. I didn't even know that, I guess I've never had the physical copy, but Angela wrote a little shout out in the back. Yeah,
0: Angela Duckworth wrote a shout out. You've got
1: like quite the list of people, Adam Grant, Beth Comstock. I mean, quite the list of folks, Daniel Pink with quotes in here.
0: Pretty cool. Yeah. People who managed to read the book found it really helpful. Um, So I hope it'll help other people. I think there's... We're in this moment where there's all this backlash against DEI, but whether you're pro DEI or anti DEI, these problems are still happening mm-hmm. at your companies. I can promise you all, they mm-hmm. are like bias is is universal. Mm-hmm. People have prejudices. It's natural for people to bully one another. When you layer power on top of bias, prejudice and bullying, you're going to get discrimination, you're going to get harassment. And you're going to get physical violence at your companies unless you specifically design your management systems so that those things don't happen. And I hope we can start getting this stuff right because it gets in the way.
1: It does. I think it's really well said. Are you writing another one after this or is this it?
0: I am, but I'm writing a novel. I'm writing a utopian novel.
1: That hopefully gets picked up?
0: Yes, yes. This one, I am, I'm going to make sure it gets published. Because I think, you know, we're at this moment in history where people are not optimistic about the future by and large. Like when I grew up, I grew up in the seventies and and eighties and I was very optimistic about the future. And my kids who are just about to turn 15 are not optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that optimism is actually important, uh, important to success. And I want to imagine a world in which we solve a lot of the problems that seem so intractable right now.
1: Can I add to that? Yeah, please. It strikes me that people aren't optimistic about the future or proud of the present.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: I view that as very sad too.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is a lot to be proud of and I feel like this is kind of a gross analogy, but I think it's worth making. I think there's a new kind of Oedipal complex that has nothing to do with your relation marrying your mother or murdering your father. But when Oedipus realized what he did, what did he do? When he realized he had he had married his mother and murdered his father, he gouged his eyes out. And we are at this moment in history where we are gouging our collective eyes out. And that is not a good way. We need our eyes to move forward to the future. So I hope that we can look at what we've done that we should be proud of, but also look at the mistakes we've made so that we can fix them so that we don't keep making them over and over and over again. I mean, denial, it's just not a good way uh, forward.
1: Yeah. It's almost like intellectual honesty is the little sister or brother of (laughs) radical candor.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of?
0: I think of that determination to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until you succeed, which is just, it's crucial. It's not getting too discouraged by failure. It's not getting too discouraged by critical feedback, whether it's fair or unfair, it's just that determination to keep learning from both successes and failures until you succeed.
1: Kim Scott, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than a hundred episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.